Hey everybody and welcome in to the newest edition of the Just In Time Sports Podcast. I am your host, Justin Jackson, and you can find the podcast on iTunes, Spotify, and Apple Podcasts. In today's episode, we'll be talking about the NBA bubble, what's going down in the playoffs. We'll touch on the WNBA. We'll have an NFL talk. We'll discuss a little bit of NCAA versus COVID. And then best for last, we'll have a recap of the games Thursday night in the NBA. Now, I hope you guys sit back and get ready to learn something. Alrighty, everybody, and we are back. And now we're going to start off today with talking about the NBA and what went down in the first round. So last, the last time we talked, we officially got all four second-round matchups filled, and we concluded the amazing series between Donovan Mitchell and Jamal Murray's team, the Utah Jazz and the Denver Nuggets. Now, that series was amazing. We had four 50-point games. We had a couple of 40-pointers in there. And the last game did not disappoint. Now, it was not the scoring fest the first six was, final score being 80-78. to 78, But for it to come down to the last sequence the way it did, Donovan Mitchell getting poked from behind by Gary Harris. Ball goes flying. Then you get Jamal Murray on a three-on-one with Torrey Craig blows the layup. Only for Mike Conley, who won the horse competition in the basketball world, having a pull-up three-pointer that rims about as far as you can go down and come back out to roll out, I mean, that's just tremendous. Donovan Mitchell left it all on the floor. After the game, he could do nothing but just fall on the floor in exhaustion. It was a great moment to see between him and Jamal Murray, showing mutual signs of respect. Two young guns that just absolutely went at each other. At certain points of the series, they even guarded each other. And it was just great to see that basketball is in good hands for the next generation with two elite young scoring guards. Also, we had Miami finishing off a sweep against Indiana. We had the Clippers finally staving off the Dallas Mavericks, although Luka Doncic would not go down easy. He got smacked in the face by Marcus Morris. He got his ankle stepped on by Marcus Morris. He got trash talked to him. Everything they could possibly do, he was doing everything to Luka to try and slow him down, and Luka just kept coming. Luka just kept fighting. And ultimately, the Dallas Mavericks did not have enough. Kristaps Porzingis could not find a way to get back on the court because he suffered a torn meniscus. And when you've got situations like that, Porzingis being out, Dallas didn't have enough firepower. Seth Curry, Tim Hardaway, they were doing their best. Boban Marjanovic was playing well. Um, You had different guys. Maxi Kleba, he was playing well. But when you were playing a team loaded with Lou Will starting to roll, Paul George finding his shot, Kawhi Leonard not wanting to go home in the first round, Dallas just simply did not have enough to fight back and to really compete for a seventh game. And without Porzingis even in game seven, I don't think they would have had a shot against the Los Angeles Clippers to advance. But that brings us to the second round. So the second round got started. The NBA is being weird. They decided to play series as fast as they can play them. So if you and your matchup both finish in five, y'all have two, three days off, and then y'all playing y'all next round, even if the entire round isn't finished. So, for instance, as of right now, Boston, Toronto, and Miami, and Milwaukee, so the entire Eastern Conference, is going to play their third game before the opposite seed in the Western Conference plays their game. 
So, for instance, Boston and Toronto will be finished with their third game before Denver and the Clippers play their first game. Now, this strategy is a solid one. It's obviously keeping players fresh. You don't have your usual uh, moments of rest and relaxation and comfort as being in your home markets. So it's a good idea to keep teams fresh. But I don't like the idea because what happens if Boston and, and Miami end up sweeping or if some weird thing happened like that? Well, then would they start playing the conference finals and the Lakers and the Clippers and the Rockets and Denver are still trying to battle game twos or game threes in the semifinals? Okay, what happens if the East goes really quickly? Now they're in the NBA finals waiting for up to a week, maybe. I mean, that's just a situation where I didn't like the NBA doing that, although I get it. But ultimately, going back to the games themselves, obviously the Eastern Conference has already started with Miami taking a controversial 2-0 lead over the Bucks. Now they obviously earned game one. That was unrefutable. They pretty much dominated from start to finish. Although Milwaukee had a good spurt there, Miami appears to be the better all-around basketball team. But game two was a little controversial. You had a, some say controversial call at the end of the regulation for the Bucks getting free throws to tie the game against the Heat, you know? And a lot of people think, man, it's gonna go to overtime now. A ref blew a call. I can't believe it. More bad officiating in the bubble because we've had incidents. Obviously, Porzingis got ejected and stuff like that. So another big officiating story in the NBA bubble. And then all of 30 seconds later, maybe, we get what on replay seems to be a very questionable call with Jimmy Butler shooting free throws in a tied game with no time on the clock to win the game. Ultimately, Butler nails them both. He only had to make one, and then he have a 2-0 lead against the Bucks. I wonder if that call is made if we're in Milwaukee. I wonder, you know, if Porzingis is ejected if we're in Dallas. It's another officiating question that we'll have to answer, and we won't have that answer, unfortunately. And so it's a situation where now the Heat are up 2-0 in firm command of the series, it's not like normal, whether it be a 2-0 going to Miami and people are thinking, is it broom time? Gentlemen sweep five. But instead you have what's soon to be the third player in NBA history to have the MVP and the defensive player of the year in the same year in Giannis. And you also have Chris Middleton, who's, who scored 28. You'll have Brooke Lopez, Eric Bledsoe will be back for game three. And so the team will be starting to surround themselves back with talent. And Giannis hopefully can have more shooters to spread the flow out a little bit and to break Miami's wall. Now going to Toronto and Boston, who is most affected by the Bucks being down 2-0, is the Boston Celtics because they're also 2-0 up on the Toronto Raptors. Now again, normally both of those games would be in Toronto. Then they'd be going back to Boston, and it'd really be talks of brooms, gentlemen sweeps, because Boston is the more talented team man for man. But obviously with Jurassic Park, Toronto is by far no easy place to play in. But Toronto has been fairly handled in the first two games of the series by the Boston Celtics. Jason Tatum has been the best player on the floor, and Marcus Smart's been the second best player on the floor. 
I mean, when you've got the first and the second best player on the floor in a playoff series, you're going to dominate that playoff series, and odds are you're going to win it quickly. And so when it comes to predictions for the rest of those two series, I'm thinking Heat in six and Boston in five. And then they'll start playing their games while the West is battling it out. I don't see much out of Toronto to sway that they'll win more than a game. And that's just because I have too much respect for Nick Nurse, Kyle Lowry, Masai Ujiri, and the rest of that Toronto camp with Pascal Siakam to say they'll get swept. But in terms of making this a real series, even pushing it six or seven, I don't see it. And that's just Boston's controlling everything. They're controlling the glass. They're controlling the perimeter. They're controlling the effort. And when you're doing that, you're going to run away with a series. So I have Boston finishing them in five. Now the Bucks get an extra game. The Bucks get to go to six. But that's just because I think Giannis can win you a game and the shooters can win you a game. Miami's been playing pretty efficiently on offense, keeping turnovers low. But Milwaukee has the best defense in the league for a reason, based on analytics. And eventually they're going to start cranking the pressure down and they're going to start forcing turnovers. So it's one game they're going to, Miami might throw 15, 20 turnovers. Milwaukee dunks 10 times off of it, where you're looking at 20 to 30 points of turnovers and the Bucks win a game. And then the MVP himself, Giannis, may just go have a game. May just go have a 40 and 20 type of night and they dominate. And so the Bucks may win too, maybe, but I'll give them six because like I said, I have same reason that I was willing to give Toronto one. I have too much respect for Giannis, Mike Budenholzer, Eric Bledsoe, Chris Middleton, and the rest of that crew and the organization that they've been building to just say they'll go down five or even worse four. And so we'll be definitely keeping an eye on that. And now switching to the Western Conference, you've got Lakers versus Rockets. You've got Nuggets versus Clippers. The matches we expected when the bubble started, more or less. Now, when it comes to the Rockets, they had a crazy game seven as well, just like the Denver Nuggets and the Utah Jazz did. And it came down to a James Harden block. If I would have told you that James Harden blocked Lou Dort, who had 30 points, mind you, to win a playoff series, you wouldn't believe me. I'm sure if that was a wager bet in Vegas, it would be 100,001. I mean, the odds of Lou Dort getting 30 when he might not have had 30 all series total. James Harden getting not one, but two blocks to win the game, basically. And the Rockets who win the game, I don't think that's even a possible Vegas odds. I'm sure if you put all that together, Vegas wouldn't even put it on the board because no one would bet it. So when you have James Harden getting a game-winning block while shooting terribly in Game 7, Lou Dort helping carry the Thunder, even though Chris Paul had a triple-double with 19, 12, and 11, if memory serves me correctly, and you've got that happening, the Houston Rockets are flat-out exhausted. They have to be. The Nuggets are, too. I remember when Scott Van Pelt told Jamal Murray that he had to play Thursday after just finishing Tuesday, he looked in utter shock. He was like, we only get two days off? I mean, that is... They're exhausted. I mean, that's why I think the Nuggets and the Jazz game was so low scoring. They were tired. They just played seven battles, one of them going in overtime. I mean, playing every other day, they were too exhausted for a high scoring game seven, only to turn around the same amount of rest and play a game one versus a fairly rested Clippers team. Houston's going to have to do the same thing. They've been in wars in Oklahoma City. 
but they're gonna have to turn around on one real day rest, one and a half if you count the most of the second day, and play against a fairly rested Los Angeles Lakers team with a motivated LeBron James, with an Anthony Davis who saw his hard work pay off. I mean, he would go crazy in series in New Orleans when they'd even make the playoffs and lose. And that's gotta be hard to come out every game and try to do that. But when you know that, hey, if I have a great game, I'm going to win the game. Anthony Davis can come out every night and say, if I do what I'm supposed to do, we'll win this game. I don't have to worry what my second star is going to do because his second star is LeBron James. He doesn't have to worry about his coaching staff because his coaching staff is Frank Vogel and Jason Kidd. And so he just has to come out and do what he has to do. And I think the Lakers are going to win that series, I'd say, in five games. I don't think the Rockets obviously don't have enough size. And with P.J. Tucker not being a knockdown shooter, it's not going to force JaVale McGee and Dwight Howard off the floor. And so if you allow JaVale and Dwight to still play their customized 30 minutes, 34 minutes, they're never going to leave the floor. And the Lakers are just going to dominate the glass, dominate the paint, and hit enough threes to stay competitive on the line. And they'll win this series in five. Now switching to the Clippers and the Nuggets, that could be a sweep. Although they don't have any rim protection for Jokic. So we saw when the Jazz played the Nuggets, Jokic was pulling Gobert out, shooting threes over his head, shooting post phase over his head. I mean, the Nuggets only scored 80 points in game seven and Jokic had 30. And so I think that Jokic is going to have his way with Montrez Harrell. Montrez is too small. He can shoot whatever he wants over him. He can shoot whatever he wants past him. And Zubac is not that great of a rim defender. And so I think that's when the Nuggets will look to probe a little more with Michael Porter, with Plumlee. Again, Jokic down there. Tory Craig going to attack the rim. And so no real rim protection. I think Denver can make it interesting. Now, would it shock me if the Clippers sweep them? Not in the slightest. It wouldn't shock me one iota if the Clippers ended in four. Would it also not shock me if this thing goes seven? Also, not one iota. If I had to put something on it, I would say that Clippers in six. Uh, I think that Denver, like I said, Jokic can go win you a game. And we just saw Murray can go win you a game. And so I think the Clippers will win this series in six, setting up the L.A. versus L.A. battle that was predicted in the preseason. And now shifting to a little bit of news in the NBA. Steve Nash was hired as the Brooklyn Nets head coach. Uh, reportedly, the team's been offering him jobs for years, trying to interview him for years, and he kept turning them down, kept turning them down. And then Kevin Durant and Kyrie Irving made the push. They wanted to bring Steve Nash in, usually top-level players, like former players, being their head coaches. You saw LeBron push for Ty Lue when he was in Cleveland. You saw how the Warriors reacted to Steve Kerr. Now, even though Mark Jackson was a former player, Steve Kerr was a former champion, and you saw the DNA of the team completely change. Now, Steve Nash does not have a championship, but he has multiple MVPs, and he helped build the seven seconds or less offense that Mike D'Antoni ended up being famous for. And so Kevin Durant, Kyrie Irving likes free-flowing offenses. They do like ball-sharing offenses, despite Kyrie Irving's reputation. They like ball-sharing offenses. And so Steve Nash being the head coach is a good fit for them. Now they're going to keep Jock Vaughn as the top assistant coach, the highest paid assistant coach in basketball. And so they'll keep him around. He'll be able to help out with defense. Nash works on the offense. And you're looking at a pretty good situation in Brooklyn with Kevin Durant and Kyrie Irving. And so now we're going to touch quickly on the WNBA and what's going down in their standings. 
So we have a truncated WNBA season. They were only going to play 22 games this year. They run a full-length playoff. Playoff seating and playoff positioning and playoff positions were decided fairly quickly. So Seattle right now has a playoff spot. So does the Los Angeles Sparks, the Las Vegas Aces, the Minnesota Lynx, and the Chicago Sky have all clinched playoff spots as of right now. And so when you look at the playoffs and what they could, could potentially be, you have Phoenix, Connecticut, and Dallas are all still within good shot of making the playoffs and still in good position to make the playoffs. Obviously, the, the favorite right now should be the Seattle Storm. Last time they were fully healthy, they were WNBA champions. Then they fell off last year. Brianna Stewart had an injury. Sue Bird had an injury. None of them played. And so Seattle obviously fell off. But when they're fully healthy, they're a championship contender. The Sparks have been looking great, especially with Candace Parker's commitment to defense this season. The Las Vegas Aces with Angel McCautry and Asia Wilson had a slowish start, but then they're rolling now. And so they are looking great as well. And so when you have teams like that, Minnesota, obviously a team that had to rebuild quickly with the loss of Simone Augustus and Lindsey Whalen, but they are doing well as well. And so that is very interesting to watch the WNBA. Hopefully we'll have official seating next week. And then we can talk a little bit about more about playoff predictions for the W. But up next, we will be shifting to NFL news. All righty, guys. And we are back. And now we're going to shift to a little bit of NFL news. So right now it is 6.35 p.m. Thursday, and we are watching closely the Jadavion Clowney saga. Now, he's been out of the news, has Jadavion for the past few weeks, really. No movement on his free agency, no real interest. We were getting reports, you know, linking him to Seattle, linking him to Tennessee at one point. Obviously, different fan bases throwing out, could he be a Patriot? I predicted he would be a Patriot. I figured with all the money New England was freeing up through the opt-outs, a big one-year splash deal for Jadavion Clowney would be very possible and would be something that, you know, Bill Belichick would do. He's already made a splash deal with Cam Newton, obviously for very little money. But when you go to a guy like Jadavion Clowney, that's something that Bill Belichick hadn't had in his repertoire since Jamie Collins, a top level pass rusher. And so when you have something like that, I figured that Bill Belichick, you know, would take the chance and he would go for it. Now, apparently he's not. According to multiple reports, we're getting that the Saints and the Titans are the leaders in the clubhouse. The Saints even going so far as to try and work with agents of different players to try and restructure contracts in order to free up money for Jadavion Clowney if he were to tell the Mickey Loomis and Sean Payton that he would like to sign in New Orleans. Now, Jadavion and Sean have talked multiple times. The Saints are feverishly throwing in an all-out blitz for him. That was a direct quote from one report. And they are trying to get him in training camp by Monday, same as Tennessee Titans, get him in Monday, get him some packages, see what kind of shape he's in and see how much use he'll be if he's gone the Saints, pass rushing Tom Brady, maybe in third down packages. So you would have him on one side, Cam Jordan on the other side, 
And that's a powerful duo in New Orleans, especially for one year when they're pushing all their chips to the table for one last run with Drew Brees. And now just to shift to the Chiefs, they received their Super Bowl rings. It was a good week for Patrick Mahomes. He got a Super Bowl ring and then gave his longtime girlfriend a ring. So Patrick Mahomes is officially engaged and the Chiefs rings looks amazing. All I can think about when I see those things is Mark Ingram staring at the turkey legs and stuff on Thanksgiving, talking about, look at the details. And so that's all I can think about when I see the Chiefs championship ring. It looks pretty amazing, actually. It's one of the best rings I've ever seen. It was pretty well done, and that was pretty cool to look at. So going back to a little free agent news, just shifting right on back. Josh Gordon is going to be signing with the Seattle Seahawks upon his reinstatement. Now, with the CBD testing being reduced in the NFL, this could allow Josh Gordon to remain on the team for a full year. Usually when he leaves the team, it's not for performance, it's for a failed drug test. And so having reduced CBD testing and reduced punishment could allow Josh Gordon to stay on the team even if he has to incur some fines, he won't miss any games. And so as a general manager, as a team, as long as your performance is up to par, you pay your own fines. I don't care about that. As long as you're available to me and you're ready to roll, then we'll have to go with that. Now, the Tennessee Titans, speaking of them, they were involved in Jadavion, had a little bit of controversy going on with their team in terms of their kicker spot. Not something you see often, admittedly, but they had a little bit of issues with their kicker position. Now, they signed Steven Guskowski earlier in the week, and we're going to, you know, bring in, you know, Guskowski just to see what he had left and to see that if he could still play. Now, he has a connection with the Tennessee Titans brass because the general manager and the head coach, who is Mike Vabral, were former Patriots where Steven Guskowski kicked for years, including in multiple Super Bowls. And so when they brought in, it was a little bit of, okay, what's going on here? And so ultimately, Greg Joseph, who was the kicker, was released. And so he, his agent, Mr. Brett Tesler, tweeted out that it could be a little nepotism there. Could it have been relationships? He said that Greg Joseph was perfect last season. He played strong in camp and there was nothing more he could have done. And he cited the relationship that Steven Guskowski has with the general manager and the head coach as something that could have been the issue with why his player was released. Now, could this just be agent talk? Possibly. Could this be just, you know, an agent trying to make sure his client gets a job quickly or stays on the radar? Absolutely possible. But also, it is something to be seen. I mean, what would make you all of a sudden bring in a kicker a week and a half or so before camp without an injury? Now, connections are everything in sports. We all know that. And so could Guskowski have gotten a job because of his relationship? Sure. But also the former kicker of the Titans, had to have been struggling, missing a couple kicks for the Titans to even bring Guskowski in because how would that look to the team if a guy is playing well in camp and then you bring in his replacement and then cut the player? So that would just be all kinds of wrong. I wonder if more would come out about that. 
Probably not. It's a kicker situation. But, you know, you never know. I'd be very interested to see if the Titans are trying to build Patriots South. They had Logan Ryan. They had Malcolm Butler. Now they have Steven Gaskowski. So that'd be something to watch definitely in that situation. Now we're going to shift to Leonard Fournette. So he was shockingly released by the Jaguars. Now they were trying to trade him apparently all summer, all fall, and they cut him a few days ago. I didn't like the timing of the release. It felt like what the Panthers did to Cam Newton. You basically hamstrung him to sign a new contract with a new team for any substantial amount of money, A, and playing time, B. So Fournette was due about $4.5 million from the Jaguars. And of course, by waiving him, they saved that. And so, but they didn't have in his clause where he couldn't double dip. So he didn't have a maximum value of $4.5 million, period, wherever he goes. So ultimately, he lasts a couple of days on the market, and then he signs with the Tampa Bay Buccaneers. Yes, Tom Brady gets another top-level talent to join his team. So now they have Tom Brady at quarterback, Cameron Bray, O.J. Howard, Rob Gronkowski at tight end. You've got Mike Evans and Chris Godwin at receiver, along with Scotty Miller in the slot. At running back, you have LaShawn McCoy, Ronald Jones, and Leonard Fournette. I mean, that team is absolutely stacked offensively. And with the defense that was coming around in the last few weeks of the season, Tampa Bay is a very legitimate title contender to hoist a Lombardi trophy at the end of the season. So Fournette is in a grievance battle with the Jacksonville Jaguars over $4 million in cash. So if he gets that $4 million grievance and hits his incentives with the Bucks, he can make up the $7 million this year. So he could get fired rehired, makes more money, and have a much better successful situation in Tampa Bay, who I'm predicting is going to win 12, 13 games this season, and possibly a Super Bowl as opposed to Jacksonville, who might win four with Gardner Minshew. I mean, that's a situation where Fournette has to be thanking his lucky stars. And now if he has a great year with Tampa, now he has Bruce Arians, he has Tom Brady, he has a different group of people vouching for him he may can go sign a pretty decent deal in free agency after this season. But we will have football in a week. We will have Chiefs and Texans in an empty Arrowhead Stadium. That's going to be a little weird, but we've been adjusting so well to the NBA bubble, so we'll have to adjust to football as well. I'm sure they'll have different camera angles, the NFL-approved piping in artificial pre-approved crowd noise at about 70 decibels, so it's not totally silent in the stadium. And that way, you know, the defense can still hear the calls, but the fans won't be able to hear them. You'll be able to hear calls more than normal because instead of 100 decibels plus, it'll be 70. Now, I'm not sure if they'll allow them to crank it on third down to a certain level and turn it down for the offense and that sort of thing. But that'll be something that I'm sure the NFL will adjust because sports right now is a purely TV product. So they're going to have to adjust things like that. And so they will have to definitely be adjusting when that happens, but we will have Texans and Chiefs in a week and football will be back. The NFL will be rolling again. But up next, we're going to shift to some NCAA talk with COVID and things are rapidly changing in college football. Alrighty guys, and we are back. And now we're gonna shift to a little discussion about what's going on with college football and their battle versus COVID. 
So obviously, you know, we're going to roll with three of the power five on schedule. Well, a little bit behind schedule, but mostly on schedule. And they'll compete for, presumably, for what is the college football playoff this season. And that'll be the Big 12, the SEC, and the ACC. So last time the show came out, that was the plan. Big 10 was looking at the spring, maybe even kind of a winter season, like starting in December, some weirdness like that. Pac-12 was just looking like spring or bust. That was the plan. That's what everybody thought was going to happen. Boom. Well, President Trump got on the phone with the Big Ten to not only have Big Ten football this fall, but to have it play on schedule with the other conferences. So to have the Big Ten play in September and to add a fourth Power Five conference into basically the college football season this year. He tweeted out something like, just got off the phone with the Big Ten commissioner and we're on the one yard line of getting Big Ten restarted immediately. Well, ultimately, it didn't come that quickly. It, and the final decision still has not come regarding the Big Ten, but they are looking now at a Thanksgiving target date, which would be about two months after the SEC, the ACC, and the Big 12 get started with their season. And so with the Big Ten coming back, Around November, they still would not be involved, although you might convince Justin Fields and other top talent to give it a whirl in a winter spring season instead of a purely spring season so close to the NFL draft. Now, a report came out earlier today that Penn State doctor said that he was seeing 30 to 35% of the athletes that test positive for COVID develop the heart issue. And of course, that sent the college sports world into panic because they're like, how dare you allow the other conferences to play and putting the kids at risk? And this is only about money and everything bad about the NCAA came flying out when this doctor released his support. Well, sources started reporting into different people that I don't know if it just happenstance at Penn State, but it's not happening at our schools. And he was saying that it was happening at all Big Ten schools, you know, 30 or 35 percent was getting the heart conditions. And so different people started coming out saying we've had one case. We've had no cases of a heart condition related to COVID. So we don't know where he's getting these numbers from, but it's not happening at our schools. Ultimately, this report was retracted and he edited the report, basically refuting the entire report and that it never happened. So that 30, 35% number that sent the college football world and the college sports world in general into an absolute panic turned it out to not be a real number. And so that was a strong relief. That was a whew, moment for the SEC, the Big Ten, who were trying to, like I said, get started somewhere around Thanksgiving, the ACC, and the Big 12. Well, Dabo Sweeney, head coach of Clemson's ACC program, said that he doesn't want college football playoff to wait. So he wouldn't want a situation where, okay, the Big 12, the SEC, and the ACC play starting September 26th, for instance. And then the Big 10 starts in Thanksgiving. Well, he doesn't want the other three to just sit there and wait for the Big 10 to finish in, let's say, late January, and then play the playoff in early February. He would say he don't want them to wait. So they don't start with the others, which they would have to do a fast turnaround really quickly to start with the others or a really, really shortened season. He doesn't want them involved in the playoff. They would just basically be playing for the Big Ten Championship. That'll be the culmination of their season. 
And so I agree with that point. I feel like it'd be unfair if you have players sitting around with no game action from as early as December to where they're sitting around waiting to early February, right around Super Bowl time, for the Big Ten to finish so then they can go into the playoff. Will the Big Ten be rested? The Big Ten have all their players. No telling what top players blow their draft stock through the roof and decide, forget the playoff, forget the championship game. It ain't worth me waiting two months, possibly injuring myself two, three months for the draft and killing my draft stock. And so I agree with Dabo Sweeney here. And honestly, I believe there's hope. You know, there hasn't been many outbreaks. We had an LSU outbreak of the offensive line only. We haven't had any massive reporting of any outbreaks. There was outbreaks when people first got to campus in terms of players. We've had no outbreaks since. And I believe there's hope for this season and that this season will ultimately get finished. And there will be a college football champion crown this season from the Big 12, SEC, or ACC. And so when you got multiple football leagues going on, the NFL will be rolling, college football will be on Saturdays. They're already readjusting ESPN and CBS contracts to get more people on national television, more programs that were willing to play through COVID on television. They're rewarding them for that. And so you will have a lot of Southern football on TV because it just means more down here. And it just means more in the South to play football. And that's going to be absolutely great to watch. Now, up next, we're going to shift to our best for last, which would be the recap of the playoff games from Thursday night. All righty, guys, and we are back. And now we're going to do our best for last, which is going to be a recap of last night's events with game three of Toronto versus Boston and game one of Raptors versus Nuggets. These games could not have been further from each other in terms of how they finished and how they played. Toronto and Boston literally came down to the last shot. I mean, competition everywhere, bodies all over the floor, and to have Kyle Lowry throw a cross-court pass over Taco Fall, the tallest person in the NBA, lands perfectly in OG Ananobi's chest for him to fire it in 0.3 seconds when he only had 0.5 to get the shot off. Perfect swish, and the Raptors win the game to effectively save their season. Because if Toronto does not win that game, they go down 0-3, and no team has ever come back from 0-3, and so their season would effectively would be over. So that was a huge shot from Toronto. Nick Nurse showed off his coaching acumen again by switching into a zone when Jason Tatum and Jalen Brown and the rest of the crew were finding holes everywhere. He slowed down Kemba Walker using his zone. And so once again, Nick Nurse, like I said, showed off that coaching acumen. And you can see in the last play, he trusted his all-star point guard to inbound. Now, a lot of times you would want, you know, your best player on the floor in the action for the play because you know for instance he would want Kyle Lowry coming off a screen getting a quick shot diving to the rim trying to get a flick layup something of that nature similar to what Billy Donovan did with the Oklahoma City Thunder by having Shea Gilders Alexander inbound he kept Chris Paul eligible to shoot the three because Chris Paul obviously is his best player and probably the person most likely to make a clutch shot on the team and so Nick Nurse maybe watched that film and edited a little bit. The plays look kind of similar, except it was from the opposite way. 
so he left a person in the opposite corner with the possibility of nailing a late game shot, which OG Ananobi did, saved the Raptors season, and now we have a series with Boston and Toronto. Now flip it over to Clippers and Nuggets. It is the exact opposite. The Nuggets flat out looked gassed by the second quarter. I mean, they were competing well early. They were competing very well early. They had leads, they were battling, they were scrapping, and then it's like they just ran out of gas. Jamal Murray left a lot of shots short. That's a sign of that he didn't have a lot of legs, didn't have a lot of lift. Jokic, again, played well early, but started leaving a little runner short, little flip shot short. Michael Porter Jr. couldn't throw a ball in the ocean standing in a boat. I mean, it was just, it was rough. And the Clippers, once they smell blood in the water, they start attacking like any great championship level team does. When you have a team down, you take them out and you get rid of them quickly. And so just based on what I've seen tonight, I still think Boston's going to end the series in six. Now, my original prediction for this round was Toronto in six, but it's going to be really hard to win four games, especially not having home court advantage in any of them. So I think it's going to be Boston in six. Although if my original prediction is right in Toronto in six, I will be probably more happy. And then looking at what I saw tonight out of the Clippers and the Nuggets, I said I wouldn't be shocked if they got swept. I wouldn't be shocked if they got swept. I mean, Denver didn't have a lot in the tank by the second quarter. You can see those guys were tired. I mean, they were out of the game for over a quarter, and they still looked very fatigued and very just worn down. So I'm sure Coach Mike Malone will start wearing their practice schedule out a little bit, start weighing it down to try and keep those guys as fresh as possible. It's the playoffs. They should know what they have to do. And so it would be very interesting to see how Denver responds in game two. I'll give them a game. I'll say Clippers in five. But like I said, I wouldn't be shocked that all of it's a sweep. And so that's going to be a very interesting series to watch. And that is all we have for today. This is a great show. I'm really enjoying doing this. I hope you guys are enjoying listening. Remember, you can find us on Apple Podcasts, iTunes, and Spotify. And don't forget to follow the Twitter at JTime Sports All Caps for breaking news, updates on the podcast, all that stuff. And I hope you guys have a great day. This is your host, Justin Jackson, signing out.